the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And he's here to say good afternoon, Northern California. Great to have you on board. It is the eighth day of May. Today's VE Day, isn't it? I just realized. Victory in Europe Day, for those of you that weren't around Clear back in 1945 when Nazi Germany surrendered, bringing to a close World War II, at least in the European theater. It wouldn't be until mid-August until the Japanese surrender finally concluding one of the most uh, dangerous and certainly costliest wars in world history. But we're not talking about that today, though we memorialize uh, this day to be sure. We will be talking about how you can become a better grandparent. Think about all the skills and abilities that you have. The caliber and quality of a mentor that you could be to your grandchild. How can you lead the way, light the road, and launch a legacy in your grandchildren? Million Book Plus selling Chris Howard joins us later on to talk about just that topic. Also, Pastor Jeff Miller will drop by for an update. There's going to be a very special marriage conference coming to Redwood Chapel in Castro Valley on Friday, May 17th. We'll have more details for you on that a little bit later on in tonight's program. Venezuela. It was once one of the most developed economically successful nations in South America. Today, though, conditions in Latin American nation of over 30 million have eroded so enormously that, in fact, the United States Navy today just announced they're going to deploy a hospital ship to South America to help refugees from Venezuela. The United States Navy's Comfort Hospital vessel will help relieve pressure on medical systems in countries that have been dealing with the refugee crisis. In fact, I just got back exactly a week ago today from South America, saw something I haven't seen in many, many years of traveling down there, and that is beggars on the streets, beggars on the streets of Cuenca, Ecuador. They are all refugees. In fact, Almost 10% of Venezuelans have fled their country in the wake of this ongoing deterioration as a result of more than 20 years now of socialism. Let's get a look at exactly what's happening at the refugee, the humanitarian crisis, and most importantly, what we can do to help. Joining me is Sean Lawrence. He is Chief Operating Officer with Giving Children Hope. And thank you so much, Sean, for taking some time to be with us today. It's remarkable to think that this nation that sits on the largest oil reserves in the world, they should be one of the wealthiest nations, and yet the people can barely find enough food to survive. What's going on? Well, good evening, Craig. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, 
It, it is mind-numbing what you're sharing. Um, I was just in a meeting yesterday with Bonnie Glick. Um, she's the deputy administrator for USAID, and she said there's not even one functioning x-ray machine in the whole country of Venezuela. And you talk about the amount of wealth and the resources they've been sitting on, but the mismanagement of the country has led to the place where there's not one functioning x-ray machine in the entire country. And we know certainly everything from food shortages, toilet paper shortages, hospitals that have no medicine, uh, they can barely keep the lights on for uh, multiple hours in a day. It it seems as if this nation is unraveling uh, at the very seams, and and yet Nicolas Maduro uh, is insistent on staying on and insistent on uh, helping to build up the straw man and suggest that everybody else on planet Earth is responsible for the decline of his nation, yet the two people most responsible, and that, of course, will be the late Hugo Chavez and this bus driver turned president. Um, We talk about the circumstances being dire. There have been, as I suggested, uh, a number of people that have just simply given up and fled. They have no other option. Um, It is estimated Ecuador alone is dealing with a refugee crisis of between three-quarters of a million, maybe up to a million people, and that certainly has been uh, the conditions in many other surrounding countries, uh, like Colombia, for example, reeling from trying to deal with this humanitarian crisis. Yeah, it's true, Craig. Um, you know, I've been at the border many times over this past year, the uh, Colombian-Venezuelan border, and uh, you know, at the public crossings, when they cross over, the first thing you hear people yelling for is, we buy hair, we buy hair. And so you know, people are so desperate just to buy food with the medicine for the children that the first, the first voice they hear when they come across the Colombian border is somebody offering to buy their hair. So imagine the other, other offers that have been whispered to them as they come across, but it's that level of desperation is, as you said, I mean, you talked at the very beginning, you know, seeing beggars on the streets of Latin America. This is, this is un, unheard of and unseen of in, in this area before. Certainly in the midst of this crisis, one of the big challenges has been the fact that Maduro has consistently turned away help of any sort, uh, most notably from the United States, although ironically he's had an open arm policy for uh, the Russians, though seemingly only to invite military aid to help prop up his failing regime. What, from a practical standpoint, is being done by your organization in specific, Sean, to help deal with this refugee crisis and assist people in countries like uh, Colombia, for example, that are there, they're displaced, they have friends and family back at home, they don't know what the future is going to look like, they're pretty desperate. How can we help? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, you know, people always kind of seem to look to the government for these types of things and they solve these problems, but we've been, for the past three years, we've been getting food into Venezuela. We've been doing that through a church network, um, both through the Protestant church and through the Catholic church. Uh, you know, the roots and the network they have and the communities, the, their, their reputation in the communities, They've been able to get food in both through uh, neighboring countries and then directly from Miami into Venezuela. And so, you know, the, the, the risk that people are, are, are willing to take, um, the level of desperation is so great, but this has been a great opportunity for the church in Venezuela to rise up and to cash in the equity they have in their communities and to serve their communities. And so even though the government is, is failing them on a scope, you know, that we can't even comprehend, uh, it's been a great opportunity for the church in Venezuela. We support of the church here in the U.S. to rise up and, and fill that gap. And so we, with the support of the church here in the U.S., have been able to get food in uh, for the past three years and are continuing to. I'll actually be leaving um, 
tomorrow evening to the border again and just making sure that those routes are still open. And the church has come up with some really, really creative ways to uh, bypass uh, some of these government restrictions. Um, but I think the, the church is always at their strongest when they're being persecuted. So it's, uh, it's been a beautiful thing to watch in the midst of this horrible crisis. And, and to be sure, and, and to be clear here for the benefit of listeners, this is not only a, a humanitarian crisis, but this is also a spiritual crisis. And, and the backdrop is people that are so desperate also means that they're much more open to the genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about religion, but relationship. And as we've seen, so many South American nations that have been uh, caught up in um, the, the flames of revival, countries like Brazil and Argentina and and Ecuador and others, uh, th- this may be, even in the midst of the, the horror of this crisis where people can barely feed their children, uh, an opportunity for God to really do something special. Well, I agree, Craig. I think, you know, we've seen throughout history what men mean for evil, uh, what God God was used for good, and uh, you've seen it with the persecution of the, you know, the Chinese house church, and I think we're seeing it now, and we are seeing that the refugees that we're talking to in Colombia, and even here in the U.S., uh, kind of like you were saying, there's, there's a survival going in the heart, purely, first and foremost, out of desperation. Uh, there's nothing else. The government has failed them. There is, they, they realize we are at a place where only God can save us, and uh, it, it's been a in the midst of this crisis, that has been a light that we are seeing shining. Certainly, even as we've seen numbers reported by Border Patrol here in the United States in the last couple of days, that uh, the last month during the month of April was one of the, the highest numbers in the last decade of people attempting to cross our own southern border. And I've got to believe that part of this is being fed by what's happening in Venezuela, that people desperate to try and care for their families and survive are doing anything that they can to make their way north and find hope. And toward that end, I think this is a golden opportunity for us, as you've suggested, Sean, to stand with the church in Venezuela um, and, and show that we are not only praying for them, but also to be able to, to help them in a, in a practical fashion as well, because the need right now is so great, as we indicated. Nearly a tenth of the population has fled the country, and, and those seeking to try and survive, as I witnessed a week ago on the streets of Cuenca, Ecuador, are begging. I have never seen that before. I mean, you, you see people selling bags of limes and things of that sort, but you just see people on the streets with an outset stretched hand, desperate for anything to try to survive. I mean, th- this is describing the current humanitarian crisis and the spiritual crisis in Venezuela. And here's a golden opportunity for we as the church to stand with the church in Venezuela and, and to assist others um, and be able to not only meet the immediate need, but of course, take advantage of the opportunity long term to share the good news of the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Toward that end, Sean, if people want to get more information about what Giving Children Hope is doing in relationship to the Venezuelan crisis right now, how can they get more information? Absolutely, Craig. I mean, there's two options. They can go to our website, givingchildrenhope.org slash Venezuela, givingchildrenhope.org slash Venezuela, or they can just text 44321 and type in the word Venezuela. Type in 44321 and type in the word Venezuela, and there'll be opportunity there for them to engage in this. Uh, We are feeding about 8,000 people a day in Venezuela, and as you said, this is a great opportunity for the church to engage in this 
Uh, the suffering is real. We know there's a million political things going on, but we know there's no question as to what God's heart is towards the poor. And this is a great opportunity for us as a church to respond. Absolutely. And again, I think this is not just something that we, we get to do. This is something that we ought to do. And so where the need is there, I want you to prayerfully consider what you might do to get involved. And again, uh, you can go online to givingchildrenhope.org forward slash Venezuela. Or, as Sean mentioned, simply um, text to the number 44321. That's 44321, and text the word Venezuela, and you'll get more information about how you can give. And we encourage you to be in prayer. It's it's a potential tipping point right now. Uh, Certainly in terms of the level of humanitarian crisis, we're right there on the edge. Politically, perhaps so, too. And, of course, there are a number of uh, negative characters in the theater that have um, nefarious intents, uh, such as Russia's military presence down there. But we we need to have a presence of the Church of Jesus to be there and to show the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and not only to to pray for and to address the spiritual needs, but during this crisis in particular, to address the physical, the felt needs as well. 44321, text the word Venezuela. Our thanks to Sean Lawrence, Chief Operating Officer with Giving Children Hope, for being with us with that report on this edition of Lifeline. All right, we step aside to get you another report, this one more local, related to traffic. Let's get a look at your ride home on this Wednesday from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We've talked down through the years many times on this program about issues of privacy and, and what it means to, to protect not only your your digital identity, certainly your financial identity, and, and even more so these days, uh, we have to be concerned about protecting even down to your very DNA. Um, it would be disturbing if I told you that we have the capability to eavesdrop on your telephone calls or watch who comes in and out of your house or monitor the TV programs that you uh, watch in the evening with your family or the websites that you visit, right? And that'd be pretty upsetting. What if I told you, what if I told you that potentially your baby upon birth had its DNA captured and put into a database for research purposes, and I'm using my my radio air quotes here, you can't see my fingers, but for research purposes, and what if that took place without your knowledge or consent? You say, wow, boy, I hope, Craig, we never get to a time in an age in America where that happens. Yeah, you're a bit late. We're already there. Twyla Brays gives us some details. She is president, co-founder of Citizens Council for Health Freedom, and host of the Daily Health Freedom Minute. And Twyla, this is pretty upsetting. I mean, to to know that DNA collection is taking place, I know oftentimes they say, well, we use this to make sure that nefarious people don't come into the country to track criminals, things of this sort. But taking DNA from newborns and the parents are not even advised, let alone granting consent, wow. Right. That is true. And the interesting thing, because, of course, you are uh, located in California is that the state of California keeps the DNA forever. It's kept indefinitely. And a very enterprising reporter from CBS in San Francisco 
uh, did a wonderful report. Her name is Julie Watts. She did a wonderful report, which included talking to moms. And so, so you could see you can see the interview, the video of her talking to moms and asking questions, and then you can see all their faces when they realize when she asked them, "Did you know that your baby's DNA is being stored by the Department of Health or the government?" And <laughs> several of moms, or maybe one. One for sure, but there are other kind of comments. But one of them said, um, is, "Isn't that is that legal?" <laughs> and um, so most people don't know the DNA of every baby is being stored in a in probably somewhere around seventeen states. All the states keep it for like maybe a few months just to make sure they don't have to do anything with newborn screening, it's, it's captured during newborn screening. I think I should say that. I realize that most of the listeners may not realize that, but at, at birth, um, within 48 hours, the baby's heel is pricked, and the blood is dropped onto a special filter paper that typically has somewhere between four and six um, dots of filter paper. They're all filled with the blood, and it's sent to the state health department to uh, conduct newborn screening, which is actually state-based newborn genetic testing. And then um, some states store it, and some states store it forever. Michigan, for instance, has a special biobank for it. They say they keep it for 100 years, but what they really mean is they keep it forever. And California keeps it forever. Uh, There have been five lawsuits uh, in different states, Indiana, Minneapolis, uh, uh, sorry, Minnesota, Indiana, Texas, and now Michigan. The latest lawsuit is Michigan. Um, And so this is happening. Parents don't have any idea, and they are not asked. But there are some states that give them a little bit of control over this, but most most of the time they're not told that they have control over it, uh, and so they don't even know it's happening. Wow. And this is being done done under the guise or direction of who or whom? Um, the federal government has a newborn screening uh, funding, and as a matter of fact, the bill to reauthorize that funding is um, coming up this year. Um, and so, there's a lot of federal funding that comes. Uh, there's a lot of funding that comes from the federal government to the states, but there's also state funding, and the health plans often will be charged a certain amount for. Um, they can be charged for newborn screening, and it really does depend on the law. Sometimes it's the state itself that pays it. The parents never pay for it. The doctors never order it because it's part of every state's law, and so it just happens. And so uh, doctors don't even talk to parents about it, and parents don't know. And um, there have been parents who, when you ask them, well, did your child have newborn screening, they have, they have no idea because everything is a fog, right after that delivery. They're exhausted. They're excited. I had one dad tell me that the mom couldn't remember what they named their child. I believe that. Right? Well, but what's problematic about this is at least a twilight, an adult can give consent. How does a newborn, two, two days old, grant consent? And what about the parental rights here? I mean, it, this is not even what, what, what I find absolutely unbelievable here is it not just this notion of you know the the grand guffaw we're going to do this for genetic screening but to engage in this data collection not only not receive 
informed consent from the parents, but not even advise them that this is going on? That's correct. There's been a general um, fear within the community that if parents know, they would object. Ah, well, there you go. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what? It's not just the storage. It's the use. So California, all you have to do is look up the California fact sheet on newborn screening dried blood spots or newborn screening what do they do with the blood? Just look that up, and they'll talk about the fact that they give it away to researchers. They say they never sell it, but as a matter of fact, in Julie Watts's story, they talk about how it's $20 per blood spot as a processing fee mm. to help pay for the program. Um, and, so, and so this is happening in Texas. One of the lawsuits was because a, the Texas Tribune discovered that uh, the Texas Department of Health was bartering, selling and bartering with those blood spots with private companies who wanted access to them for research. Hmm. So this, uh, so it's not just storage and use. And as a matter of fact, there's a wonderful study that was done out of Michigan called um, Not Without My Permission. And they did a survey of parents, and they, they found that parents weren't quite as concerned about the storage, but they were very concerned about the research being done without their consent. And they wanted, if they were willing to do consent, most of them wanted to consent per study. So, okay, I'll let you do this one, but you come and ask me if you want to do another one. You know, that, that sort of thing. And, and what you said about adults, right? They cannot take our DNA and store it without our consent unless we're a criminal. But here they are taking the, the blood the DNA, it's all, the only thing it's good for after six months is the DNA. Everything else disintegrates except the DNA. So they're taking the DNA at a time when parents are vulnerable, don't know what's happening. They're exploiting the, new, the uh, birthing uh, process and that whole, you know, that whole uh, vulnerability at that time, exploiting it to get the DNA of all these children, which become, of course, adults. Adults with their DNA stored by the government without their consent or knowledge. Well, and it also, I think, comes back to a a fundamental question that we're not answering, and that is, who technically owns this? Who has a right to it? Uh, The fact that this being taken without anybody's consent is appalling enough, but that we've never answered the question, ultimately, if my DNA is is you know my key to to the essence of who I am at the very depth setting the spiritual dynamic aside for the moment then don't I have a fundamental right to that and why does it seem to me that this ought to somehow become covered under fourth amendment rights here that this is this is illegal search or illegal seizure of of something that ultimately and most preciously only I ought to have a right to and that's exactly how parents won in the state of Texas. They claimed Fourth Amendment rights, and the state of Texas had to destroy the 5.4 or 5.2 million cards of uh, newborn DNA. We call it baby DNA. So we call it baby DNA warehousing. That's what's happening here at the state level. And um, because of Fourth Amendment rights and because parents challenged it, um, they had to destroy it. They incinerated it all. They took it in the middle of the night. Two, I think it was two and a half truckloads of uh, baby DNA cards and incinerated it. Uh, they didn't, <laughs> didn't tell anyone because I think they didn't want any visuals. <laughs> wow. Uh, so is it, does the same thing need to happen here in California? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I know that, um, how do you you say his name? Is it representative? He's no longer in office. Gatto or uh, something like that. He, He was trying to get consent requirements for the storage and the use of newborn DNA, and he didn't get that bill passed. But somebody in California who's listening to you needs to be perturbed enough about this to begin this process. And the newborn screening community, you know, all the researchers, the state health department folks, all of those whose, you know, entire job depends on having access to the DNA of newborns, or at least part of their job does, right? They're scared of this, and they know, because our organization discovered this in 2003, and it's because of us that all these lawsuits have happened, all the, you know, stories in the news that have then caught a parent's attention, and parents have sued. And so this is, this is what really has to happen, because your DNA is you. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's your entire genetic code. It's your blueprint. They want to use it how they want to use it. And eventually, they want to sequence every child at birth. The federal government has already paid $25 million for four federally funded research projects to sequence children. Sequence means that the entire DNA is laid out. You know, it's not just like find out a biomarker for cancer or breast cancer or prostate cancer, right? It's not that. It's, it's find out the entire DNA and put it in a record. Well. That child has lost its genetic privacy at birth before it had anything to say about it. So I know I know they're a little bit concerned. They're worried about the ethics of doing this. <laughs> and so they should be, because nobody should be sequenced until they're an adult and they decide to do it themselves. Well, and, and you know, I, I'm sorry, my mind, uh, Twyla, goes to things like, gee, what, what Margaret Sanger wouldn't have done with information like this? Um, almost a century ago, and 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 in the hands of the wrong people, what could happen? Never mind the hands of the wrong people. It is the the constitutionality question, the right to privacy question, the Fourth Amendment right question that makes this disgusting, um, and 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 ought to have every parent absolutely livid, absolutely livid that this is going on. Now, you want to put Congress to work? Write a letter to your congressman. Contact Diane Feinstein and politely say, what the heck is going on here? Okay, I'm going to get uh, going to get warmed up here, and I don't want to do that because I'm only a couple days back from vacation. Not ready to get the blood boiling just yet, but this got me on the edge. The Italian in me is about to come out. Twyla Braze, we appreciate so much the insights on what's going on here. We're going to have to stay on top of this story to be sure. Information, by the way, about the Citizens Council for Health Freedom and this story in particular at CCHF or CCHFreedom.org. That's CCH, think Citizens Council Health Freedom.org. Unbelievable. Okay, Joel's getting the bucket of ice water. (laughs) While he does that, let's talk traffic.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I think one of the things of life that I, I cherish the most in terms of the tremendous blessings that I have enjoyed down through these 39 years. Joel paused about 39, more or less, is the fact that I grew up living three doors down from my grandmother. And I had the advantage of all the home-baked goodies and home-baked cookies and home-baked pies and somebody to put a Band-Aid on my knee when I got a boo-boo, all that wonderful stuff. But to be sure, some of the things that I – certainly I missed that a lot. But the things that I cherish the most is the lessons that I learned, the mentoring, essentially, that I benefited from in having a grandparent so close by. Um that's not true for a lot of kids growing up, and that's sad. And for those of you that, that do have grandkids and there are grandparents around, wow, what an incredible opportunity you have as a grandparent to speak truth into your grandson or granddaughter's life in a fashion and form that, quite frankly, your kids, their parents, will never be able to do so. Let's find out more. We talked today with a million-plus selling author, She's written, my goodness, uh, written or co-written more than 100 books, author of nine books, edited and co-written 100 books, author of nine, more than one million copies in print in six languages. She is the grandmother to 14 kids. We're about to hear from an expert. She is the author of a new book called Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. And Chris Howard, great to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I think you pretty much said it all in your introduction. What <laughs> great opportunity to have your grandparents right there. You know, it, it, it really was. And I recognize that that's something special. You know, in our society today, Chris, with so much movement that tends to go around and people move across town and across country for employment opportunities and school and things of this sort, uh, sadly, the number of grandkids that get day-to-day -day interaction with their grandparents that I enjoyed is dwindling. And yet, for those that do have that opportunity, boy, what a chance to be able to really speak truth to that child, as I suggested, in a way that uh, certainly no parent could. My, my dad could tell me stuff, and I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. My grandmother would say the exact same thing, and suddenly the way she said it made sense. Absolutely. I think um, counselors talk about somebody who's a person of influence that can speak into your life. and. And sometimes, and a lot of times, it isn't the parents who are those people of influence. It's great when the parents are the ones, but when, especially when they reach those teen years and when they don't necessarily look to their parents, grandparents can step in. with. And, and it's a different approach with grandparents. You know, it's just a whole different thing. So that's, that, you're right. That's an awesome opportunity. Today's world, so many people don't live right next door. I happen to live next door to some of mine, which is awesome, but I also have some who live seven hours away. But because of new technology, I'm FaceTiming, I'm texting, I'm Snapchatting with them. I'm able to still be a part of their life in a way that my grandparents weren't able to do with me when I was growing up. They didn't live close, so I didn't have those opportunities. 
So you're really harnessing some of the the technology to to help and not hinder in terms of the ability to uh, to not only carry on the relationship but to to really give substance to it. And it's interesting because I think most grandparents at least initially know how to spoil the kids and I've heard folks that are new grandparents say, "Well, you know, I made some mistakes with my son or daughter, but I won't do that with my grandkids. And they kind of they kind of cherish that that opportunity to be able to spoil the kids. And at the end of the day, when the kids misbehave, say, "Okay, go home to your folks. But your book, as the title suggests, Rockstar Grandparent, really gets down to the nitty gritty of how you can be more than just a grandparent who shows pictures to everybody who'll stand still long enough to look at them, but also how you can be a grandparent that really provides that sense of uh, mentoring, shall we call it, into their lives? That's right. I really think that that's the way God designed it, for us to uh, be intentional about what we do with our grandchildren. And sometimes the intentionality is kind of a spoiling thing. As a grandparent, there's things we can do that we couldn't do as a parent. We wanted to do, but our better judgment said, no, we don't need to do that. But grandparent, we get to do those things because the parents are doing those other little bit tougher things. And that gives our our grandkids that place to land in a little bit softer space. But at the same time, I talk a lot about in my book about, you know, teaching them also those very important things like kindness and respect for others and obedience. I know you're, you're out in California in the South. We are very much about being respectful of the older generation and using those words, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. I, I know that's not true everywhere, but for us, that's an important thing. And I laugh because my grandkids will even, when they text me, it'll say, yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. I mean, they're, like, not even going to say that in a text. <laughs> it's really cute, and I, I love that, that they have that level of respect for me. But yet, at the same time, I can do some spoiling things if I want to as a grandparent, and I think... That's where the parents need to understand it is a different role. We all have different roles that we play in raising these children up to become the adults that we all want them to be. And to be on the same page with uh, the disciplinary type of things is really awesome and where we should be. But then we can have that freedom to do some of the funner things that a grandparent can do as well. And, of course, along with that, as you suggest, you know, where some people might say, well, we're talking across uh, multiple generations here, and oftentimes the, the ways and, and the methodology that we communicate, not only literally but, but figuratively in the sense of the language we use, things of that sort, is often so different. But I, I'm thrilled to hear that you're seeing the technology as not a barrier or a hindrance, but rather really as a bridge or a tool that can be used. And one of the areas, and we we'll want to talk about this when we come back after the break, one of the areas that I think uh, can be so vitally important in terms of the influence of grandparents is today, more so certainly than, than ever before, we have more blended families, we have more children that are products of divorced families, and I tell you, for me in particular, it was the divorce of my parents uh, and my mother stepping in, my grandmother rather, stepping in to, to the literally take over the role of my mother that made such a huge difference in my own life. And so in, in the backdrop of what is sadly the, the disintegration more often than we'd like to see of the nuclear family in America today, here's a golden opportunity for the grandparents to really do something special. We'll talk about that when we come back. Best-selling author Chris Howard is with us today. By the way, um, 
Chris, in addition to being a grandmother of 14, is mother of three adult children, including to Corey Robertson, one of the stars of A&E's hit TV show, Duck Dynasty. So if you thought, I know the name, well, now you've made the connection. We're going to connect more with Chris Howard right after we get a look at traffic. Let's connect over at the KFAX Traffic Center to see what's going on out there here in your Wednesday ride And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation, milling book-selling author Chris Howard. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but it's significant, isn't it? Chris Howard's new book, Rockstar Grandparent, How You Can Lead the Way, Light the Road, and Launch a Legacy. Let's talk about um, some of the disconnects we see in society today, Chris. And I alluded to this earlier, that um, it, it was really the, the divorce of my own parents and my grandmother stepping in, kind of the role of surrogate mother that made just a huge difference in my life. With blended families and divorce and all that going on today, this role of grandparenting can become even more significant, can't it? Well, absolutely. And I, uh, we do see so much of that today. And um, a lot of grandmas that we're calling granny nannies who are taking care of the grandkids while the mom and dad both work. That goes on, as well as my one of my best friends actually adopted her grandchildren 10 years ago and continued to raise them, and now both of them are in college. So a lot of grandparents are stepping in in a way that they never thought that they would have to do. But here's the deal. I do say that grandparents are the glue that hold all the families together, whether your family is intact or you're having some problems with it. Grandparents do play that role of keeping families together. And, and like in your case where your grandmother really stepped in to play a huge part in your life, uh, same for me. My son became a single dad uh, 12 years ago. His children were very young, and so I did the same thing, stepped in and helped him raise the kids, and they're now 15 and 17, 15 and 16 and 18. And so um, they are doing great and are thriving and um, I love them, and I'm so proud of them, and I wouldn't have done anything else but help them get to adulthood, as I'm sure your grandmother would say the very same thing, that she did just what she wanted to do and needed to do, and she did it. And I just see grandparents all across the country doing that, just stepping up and doing whatever's necessary to raise the next generation. And. Beyond being the glue that holds the family together, I I, I want to speak specifically to another important dynamic here, and that is that that while certainly my my parents were an influence on my faith in, in a huge way, I think my 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 understanding to learn how to pray, um, and the sense of the real true intimacy with God really was handed down from my grandmother. That that sense of being a spiritual influencer is quite the important role, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, in my family, it's the same. My parents became Christians, believers, when they were, when I was young, four, four or five years old, I, I remember them going and going to the church and being baptized, but it was my grandmother that I watched with a Bible out her whole life, um, studying and I can just remember hearing her sing in church and her beautiful alto voice that she sang in. And so, yes, it's just little kids. We watch what's going on as children. Our children are watching us 
And that's where the challenge is for us, even in our older, as, as older people in their lives, to be aware of what we're doing because their eyes are always watching us and they will remember and it will make an impact on their life. And that's what we're here to do, to make a difference. And, you know, the other thing, too, for, for grandparents, I mean, I, I, I think, and I know, I know some that say, oh, don't call me that. It makes me feel old. But there, there is the sense, once you've arrived at that stage in life, that you've seen a lot, you've experienced a lot, you've learned a lot. Not only do you have much information to impart, but there is a level of spiritual maturity about your relationship with Christ that you can pass down to your grandkids uh, in a fashion and in a layer that is quite unlike or quite different than your parents, if not because of the, the nature of the different nuances of the relationship, but also the fact that mom and dad, quite frankly, just not been around as long as grandma or grandpa. That's exactly right. My mother, we call her the queen of our family, the reigning matriarch. She's 88 and just an amazing lady. And all of us love to listen to her talk, no matter what she says. She has this voice of wisdom because she's lived 88 years. She can just speak on any subject. She raised six kids, lots of grandkids, multiple jobs. She's like an expert in everything, but she doesn't want us to say that about her, but it's seriously true. We just having wisdom, wisdom comes just some of it was just by aging and living life. And so, yes, us, us grandparents, all of us have some wisdom that if we're willing to share with our grandkids and our kids, it's there. Let's talk a bit about, you alluded to this earlier, um, you have been successful at harnessing technology. And I know for a lot of older folks, uh, this can be very intimidating. Uh, let's face it, uh, unless you're a millennialist, you didn't grow up with a computer, you didn't have a cell phone wired to your fingers. When we made a phone call, I had the, the thing on the wall that had the big dial that you put your fingers in the holes. <laughs> Young people today hardly even know what that style of a telephone is. But the, the, the nature of communication is changing. It's changing all the time very dramatically, very rapidly. Uh, and, and, and yet, the, the, while we might be intimidated by a lot of this, there's also a way in which this can really help us become or keep better connected, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, this is a great way to stay connected. And what a great way to connect with your grandkids, but to have them help you learn some of this. I've done that all through the years. I mean, the, my grandkids are like, okay, Tim, Mama, what, what do you need? You know, I'm, uh, they help me find, figure out how to do something. And then once I know how to do that, then I use that to my advantage as a grandparent. I mean, texting is such an amazing way to send a message to your grandkids that you're not with. You know something's coming up. They've got a ball game. You can't be there. You send them a text. Hey, I'm praying for you tonight. I know you're going to do an awesome job. Can't wait to hear about it tomorrow. Those are little simple ways that you can stay connected. Minor teenagers now. A few days ago, I'm my, one of mine's FaceTiming me from Alabama, showing me her prom dress, just looking in a mirror, letting me still be a part of her life. That's amazing that we can do that. I wish that I would have been able to do that with my grandmother. So this is a way we can stay connected by knowing how to use these things that they're using whatever they're on they're on instagram i'm on instagram they have snapchat i have snapchat twitter i'm on twitter 
so that I know what they're speaking and I can be a part of that conversation. My mother at 88 still says, I just want to be relevant. And we say, Mom, you are definitely relevant. And relevant means that you can still connect and, and your kids can have a conversation with you. Not that we want to be them, but we want to have a conversation with them. Now, a word of advice, if you would, Chris, to the grandparent out there who, who, who's hearing what you're saying and, and perhaps has a real longing for this, but also there's that sense of saying, well, I don't want to be too intrusive. I, I, I don't want to feel as if I'm attempting to sort of interject myself or override my children's parenting and, you know, they've made mistakes and, and I, I, it's hard for me sometimes to keep my mouth shut, but I don't want to create problems in the family. What do you say to that grandparent that feels as if they would be intrusive if they're too plugged in? There's nothing uh, more difficult uh, then navigating that road with your adult children who are now parenting your grandchildren because we see things and that we would like to change, but we can't. That's not our role anymore. And I talk about that in our book, that, that in my book, that when it's your turn, when it's their turn, let it be their turn. And you take the role that you are supposed to have. Uh, and that is being the leader of the family and uh, lighting the way and all of those sort of things. But it is difficult way to, road to navigate. And being from the South, we're, we're even more cautious, I think, than any other section of the world that we don't want to intrude on anybody. We don't want to step where we shouldn't step, so we're very cautious about that. But I think that starts with having a relationship with your grandkids from the time they're little and letting that build where you have that place in their heart so when something comes up that you think you can help them with influence them in some way you've established that relationship so they know that you're somebody you're a safe place they can go to for a conversation about whatever it is it's a boyfriend or friends at school or schoolwork that they're not getting whatever it is you have to have developed that as they're being raised so they know they can they can turn to you. And you, you don't want to ever overstep the bounds of the parent. That's that's a number one rule. If parents have a rule, you, you stick with it. But you can have those conversations with your, your kids, too, when you feel like it's a safe time to have a conversation. But better to just let parents be parents and you be the grandparent. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, you can develop a, a layer of, of trust that can be so critically important to a young person who may not feel comfortable talking to mom or dad. What a wonderful joy and opportunity it might be, though, um, to have developed that level of relationship and trust with your grandchild so that they feel comfortable talking to you. And what a tremendous blessing that you can be. Uh, I, I will always cherish uh, the many lessons that I learned, the time that I spent, uh, the blessings that I received at the, at the hand of uh, my grandmother. And I hope you as a grandparent will take that to heart and uh, will pick up a copy of this book so you too can learn how to become a rock star grandparent, learn how to lead the way, light the road, and launch a legacy. The new book, by the way, a newly published here by Waterbrook Press, available bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can get it through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, also through uh, Chris's website, Chris Howard, spelled C-H-Y-R-S, Chris Howard. 
com. And Chris, thank you so much for uh, sharing some uh, time and the insights. Maybe we'll get you back on one of these days to talk about uh, Duck Dynasty, too. There's Chris Howard, rock star grandparent. Six o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. We're going to talk to our rock star traffic team. See what's going on out there on your Wednesday ride home. Around the corner, Pastor Jeff Miller is going to discuss with us great opportunity for you to strengthen your marriage relationship. But first, let's get around that corner with a little help from our friends in the KFAX Traffic Center. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.